0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience, your one-stop shop of full, whole, complete, unadulterated truth about what really matters in politics. Your only source, increasingly only source, of independent conservative thought, activism, and all-around truth-telling. It is Friday afternoon. I am tired as anything exhausted my voice has pretty much gone out because I've been talking all day so I wasn't even planning on doing a show today but I felt bad just leaving you guys floating for the weekend so I can't promise this is gonna be as long as it usually is but I did de- definitely wanted to just close the loop on some of what we started out the week with you know we started out the week with this big Mueller news and we noted the point that look it's great we're gonna focus on this. But after a day or two or three or a week, we got to be through with this. And we got to deal with the border. We got to deal with judicial supremacy. We got to have a vision. And, you know, the president had his rally last night in Michigan where it was almost foreboding when Don Trump Jr., the president's son, got up there and said, For this week and this week only, MAGA now stands for Michael Avenatti got arrested. Okay, that was a a good line. Nice. And I fell out of my seat because I was like, man, if only that were true. If only it were just for this week where MAGA just stood for the soap opera instead of literally restoring our republic, which is what it was supposed to stand for. At its core, Make America Great Again was about finally putting Americans first. You know, I don't know what Trump intended or didn't intend, but I think on a deeper level, what his voters certainly took that to mean is a reaffirmation of the social compact that government is first and foremost of buy in for its own citizenry, not for anyone else, not for other foreign nationals, not for illegal invaders. It's for law abiding Americans. And my challenge to Don Trump Jr. and and, and the president is let's make that happen. Look, you had a good week. I get it. Starting Monday, new week, April Fool's Day. Get back to expending your political capital on what actually matters. On what actually matters. Now, I'm thankful to God that... We haven't had an injunction on this show yet. No federal judge has struck down, so to speak, this uh, broadcast. So until they do, at least we have our freedom of speech here. But I wanted to close the loop on some of our discussions over the week about the power of the courts and what, what is the judicial power and what it isn't. If you've noticed, not an hour goes by where there's not some insane court opinion affecting something very important that Democrats could never accomplish in years of control of the legislature. So you have, obviously, every day the courts are blocking Trump's environmental stuff energy stuff, drilling things. You saw the court so-called struck down the work requirements that HHS worked with the states of Kentucky and Arkansas to require some modicum of you're demonstrating that you're at least working or trying to obtain work in order to be eligible for Medicaid. We have the North Carolina abortion law. We have stuff going on in the Supreme Court. Another execution was stayed by this guy that years ago murdered a cop. Takes forever to get an execution. They stayed it again. All but Gorsuch and Thomas joined in. Every day we see our concerns about how Roberts is the new Kennedy and how Kavanaugh well, he never wasn't the new Kennedy from day one, are really a problem. So there's a lot to go over. I want to just first, you know, go through some of what's going on in the courts to just explain again what our thesis is about the judicial power versus other powers. So you have in North Carolina where a court, so called, struck down their law prohibiting abortions after 20 weeks. Now, remember we explained, even before the step of a court getting an opinion wrong, getting the Constitution wrong, and therefore the other branches have the right and indeed the obligation with their powers to follow their version of the Constitution... We pointed out that laws don't get struck down, meaning even if you believe that the other branches should follow the lead of the judiciary, you're a judicial supremacist. But even a judicial supremacist has to concede, a court doesn't make policy, nor do they veto policy. They tell a plaintiff, you could do the following. The law tells you, you can't, don't worry, I'm not going to lock you up. You have my permission as a judge to go ahead and live your life without that. So in this case, you would say, all right, you want to go get an abortion? You're Don't worry. We're not going to enforce the power of the law in the judicial branch of government. All it means is that is that if they brought you before us, we're not going to – or let's say you're a doctor. So in this case, what happened was the law was around since 1973. But in 2015, the legislature criminalized the performance of abortions when the fetus is beyond 20 years uh, 20 weeks of, of uh, duration. And what happens at that point is that, you know, the doctor could face, I forgot what the penalty was, but he could face jail time. So, you know, to lock someone up to take away their life, liberty, and property, you need a court. Okay? That is in, at its foundation what the judicial power is, to interpret the law – now, even not in criminal proceedings, but I'm saying as it relates to criminal proceedings, that's really where you have the – if you had to draw a spectrum of like a Venn diagram of the overlap of powers, you start at one end, you have solely judicial, one end solely executive, one end solely Legislative, And then they merge these areas where there's really joint jurisdiction. They have different angles to, to have some sort of dominion over that issue. So when it comes to locking people, ultimately a judge has to order that. And it's in those cases where they have the strongest power. So for example, I always say this, the ultimate, ultimate example is executing someone. So that that's the hardest one to plow because when it when a judge issues an order that is that is lawful right that is their power um to stay in execution and if the executive branch were to go and execute the guy that would be not listening to a court so to speak now look i'm not saying that there's never a time for that um, because again, there's a reason why the police power was not placed in the hands of the courts. But then the end of the day, I'm not advocating they do that as much as I believe it's BS what they're doing with a lot of these executions. I didn't study it very well in this case, what it was. They said, oh, it's a guy who claimed to be a Buddhist and they didn't allow his Buddhist religious leader in the room, only outside of it, in the death chamber, whatever. It's, it's pure BS that you could hold up an execution for that. But nonetheless, I'm not saying that the administration should start from, or in this case, the state of Texas executive branch, to start pushing back against the courts in that way. But when it comes to abortion, I want you guys to understand this is what we need to educate Republican leaders in the states. The courts don't strike down a law. The law is still there. The law is you cannot obtain or perform an abortion after 20 weeks. There's a lot of things a state could do to to scare people off and enforce that. Ultimately, if you want to grab them and throw them in jail, and they come before a judge, the judge will say, "Well, look, the our 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 branch of government said that we don't recognize this because we believe it's unconstitutional. So we're not going to, you know, allow you to lock this guy up. We're not going to have jail time. Fine." But you see what I'm saying? The problem is, our guys like, oh, they, they run away and say the courts struck it down. There's nothing we can do. It's not true. You need to first act like the law is still there. Very important. I mean, because the courts are now saying you have to facilitate abortions. You have to. No. Now you're asking that we take a positive action. That is executive power. You do not have such power. Often you're asking that we fund things, you do not have that power. A legislature has the power of the purse. You could just place a negative on negative, unalienable rights. That is your job as the judiciary. So I wanted to point that out because this judge went off to say any rule setting a specific benchmark of a certain amount of weeks, like after 25 weeks or after 30 weeks of pregnancy, abortion is is illegal, is unconstitutional. It's covered by Roe. And it's not true. It never says that in Roe or Casey. And he made it up. And by the way, this was a George W. Bush appointee. There's a lot of those. So it's important to remember that a judge cannot legislate a specific date. The case was... The problem is, and this is why we need to start narrowing the rules of standing, a judge can't just take a a, a law and adjudicate it. Someone has to bring a case, and you can't just bring a case, a straw man plaintiff to to strike down a law because they can't strike down laws. Show me a woman who wants an abortion and can't get one, and let's talk about what her circumstances are. But to in the abstract say 20 law, 20 week law is struck down, and anything else you pass in the future that has a specific date, you can't do that. That power doesn't exist. And we need to push back against that. So that's one case. Now there's another case. As you know, in Arkansas, the and and, and Kentucky. Federal District Judge said that they can't require work requirements as a condition for obtaining Medicaid. As you well know, HHS under Secretary Azar, Azar, he gave the states a waiver to be able to make that determination. Now, I warned a lot of you that The same courts that are slowly creating rights to immigrate, rights to redefine marriage, redefine life, they're going to screw with fiscal issues as well, and they already are, and they're going to create economic rights. They're going to create a right to welfare, a right to minimum wage. They're already doing that. Now, technically in this case, they'll tell you it was statutory. They're just saying, look, this executive branch you know giving waivers that they're not entitled to give. But I'm telling you, between the lines, that's what they're doing. But this is another great example. Again, i someone is bothering me. The government, one of the branches of government, usually it's the executive branch, is bothering me. They're taking something from me. They're grabbing something from me. They're grabbing my person. They're locking me up. They want to, in the most extreme case, execute me. I could go to a court and ask for relief. That's what a judicial case is. But if a judge says a judge – first of all, a judge can't strike down Medicaid work requirements. They don't – I mean it just – mechanically, that's not what happens. They don't have that power. They could render a judgment. But here is where it's no longer a semantic debate. See, typically, again, if if it comes to a criminal law locking you up and they say, look, the judiciary is not going to enforce it, it essentially winds up gutting it if you don't enforce it. But – you have to understand the mechanics of each case makes make, makes a difference because here it has nothing to do with a criminal case of life, liberty, and property. You want something from the government. You want something from taxpayers. You want appropriations diverted for you because you want Medicaid benefits paid for you. Well, we're saying we're only going to give it to you if you work. A judge can't – what does the judge say? You don't have to work. You get Medicaid. Well, you don't control the treasury. You see what I'm saying? That is not within the province of the court unless Congress potentially writes into statutes that courts could review such cases. And with the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, they have done that largely, and I believe they need to rein that in. But I'm telling you, constitutionally, inherently the courts don't have that power. And I will tell you that often when Congress has written that power of judicial review into the APA, I believe it's often unconstitutional. It's funny how when a lot of these dudes started worrying about Article I powers, when the president declared an emergency on the border, then they said, we need to stop this. This is a Article I power. And at the time, we laughed at them. We said, it's funny how... So anyway, we pointed out that... What do you mean? Statute says he could do it. They're like... So a lot of the libertarians are like, well, you know what? The statute's unconstitutional. Congress can't delegate that authority. So you can't do it. And I found it funny, they're they're saying that they're so against executive powers that they say even if Congress delegates it, it could be unconstitutional. And, and in theory, that is true. There are times where clear I mean, like if you would write a statute to say, okay, president, here's the statute. But if any circumstance comes up over time that you feel you need to modify and pass your own things to comport with the realities of the time, you could do it. Well, that's that's giving him the legislative authority. It's not your power to give away. You can't do it. But by the same token, they never recognize when there's a problem of delegated authority, authority to the judiciary. The same way, Congress cannot give over to – the president legislative authority they cannot give over to the judiciary legislative or power of the purse authority or veto authority for that matter they could just say you have the ability to review these type of cases and give a judgment for the right plaintiff with the right standing but at the end of the day they don't have the power of the purse and if we disagree with your determination, we're not giving you that Medicaid. You know, it's the same thing with the border. When everyone was like, eh, don't worry about the president signing the bill and giving in and not vetoing. He'll take care of it executively. And we pointed out, no, it's not going to work. It's the same thing with health care. If you remember at the time, you're like, yeah, the president will take care of Obamacare executively. Well, guess what? Every last thing they try now, the courts shut down. Again, I'm I'm using that colloquially, you know, the way we talk, shut it down. Really, they don't, they can't shut down anything. But many of you saw last night, the courts ruled, district judge, that the president's association plans are a violation of the ACA. It's a violation of Obamacare. It's he doesn't have statutory authority. If you remember, one of the things the president did, he did three things with his HHS executive rulings to try to just open up the insurance market a little bit. And one of them was to say, you know, if you're part of a specific profession or trade, you could band together and have association plans so you have more purchasing power. Um, You know, it's a lot of you guys, people like me. You're small. You're um, see, I'm not. I'm 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 self-employed for the, at least for the well I'm employed by the Blaze Media but for the purposes of insurance I don't I don't get it um but if you're a small business owner as you, if you have the ability to be a part of an association which a lot of people don't and this is not a panacea for a lot of people but the people that it did include you're theoretically able to they promulgated a regulation that insurance companies could offer and contract with these associations to give them group rates so, again, it will fix more people in the individual market that are totally screwed and don't have options. So that's what the president did. In comes a court and says, no, you can't do that. Struck down. Association plans are struck down. Now, I want to, again, point out to you, in terms of standing, how the, how this makes no sense. I will concede, concede to you that as much as I agree with the policy I, I haven't looked at it carefully yet. I, I just haven't had the time. It is very likely that the president ex- exceeded his authority in this case, and this was also—it was Judge John Bates of the D.C. District, it was actually George W. Bush appointee, and it could very well be that Bates's reading of the statute is right. But again, my question to you is. If the president exceeds his authority, not everything is up to the judiciary. Congress needs to deal with that. And the next budget bill, defund it, punish the president. But what I don't understand is who the hell has standing. Think about it. I'm not so there's there's three cases we talked about. One is like just don't tase me, bro, don't throw me in jail. Then we talked about I want a positive benefit. Give me Medicaid. This case is: I don't want that guy to be left alone. We're not giving benefits. We're just saying, leave me alone. Allow me to contract and don't get in my way. Mind your own business. So you have the state of New York is coming in, and they had other states join then The Attorney General of New York sued this regulation. Now they're going to tell you, well, because uh, you're opening up more uh, plans like that, it's gonna it's gonna hurt them. But I mean, that's nonsense. It's too parsimonious. It's too glancing of an injury in fact to get standing. Or at least it should be. At least we need to clarify that in statute. Could be Congress has authorized that. You know, because under the APA, you are allowed to have judicial review on this stuff. But again, it's a standing issue. I mean, th- there's one thing, Texas, and I'm not just saying this because I like the political outcome. You know, I fundamentally don't really agree with the Texas lawsuit against Obamacare. But there they're saying, look, I mean, we want to be left alone. We want unregulated plans. You are shoving your regulations on us. So in this case, the administration is saying, look, we're giving you regulatory relief. You can't have some states say, I don't want them to get those plans. I mean, that, that, that's not. What, what sort of relief do you want? Again. Don't lock me up in jail. So a judge says, you don't go to jail. Here it's, what, what are you going to say? Uh, you don't get association, but well, it's not about you, it's about them. Well, I don't want them to get association plans. That is already getting into separation of powers questions. And that's what I mean to tell you by the fact that we need to jettison this notion of courts striking things down, they grant relief. Now, one form of relief that's been given is injunctive relief, they put an injunction, but again, that requires, the in the Venn diagram, moving over to other branches of government have to cooperate with that. And you're asking them to start doing or not doing things that are within their powers. It's not about locking someone up anymore. It's gotta be a justiciable case. We need to start enforcing this. Let me move on to one of the most egregious things I just saw. And it's not even um it's not even obviously it's not consequential to our public policy, but it really brings out this point of the courts being able to litigate every policy when it makes no sense. Federal judge rules North Carolina school broke law by requiring girls to wear skirts. Federal. This is the Hill.com. Federal judge ruled that North Carolina school broke the law when it required girls to wear skirts. Judge Malcolm Howard ruled that Charter Day school unconstitutionally discriminated on the basis of sex when it required girls to wear skirts. The Associated Press reported citing a Thursday decision. The guardians of three girls sued the school in 2016 Allegedly alleging that the dress code makes them colder than boys during the winter and also forces them to pay constant attention to the position of their legs during class, distracting them from learning and has led them to avoid certain activities altogether, such as climbing or playing sports during recess, all for fear of exposing their undergarments and being reprimanded by teachers or teased by boys. Look, you, you could agree or disagree over whether a school should have a dress code or a particular dress code and I know there's been a lot of different legal cases over what courts could limit what what schools could limit you wearing and saying and freedom of speech but the reality is we're missing the understanding of fundamental rights is you are bothering me here you are going to a particular school and 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 they are allowed to have their regulations now you could say if it's something like, I don't know like the opposite you you have in order to come to our school you have to walk around buck naked or something that 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 just totally violates a a person there, there's just no degree of reasonableness to it um there's no rational basis for what they're doing is one thing but I mean like obviously you know Girls are different than boys. You, of course they could wear pants and you have female pants and some women only wear pants, but certainly it's, you know, to, to have girls wear skirts and you know certainly in, in purely private schools, um fully, you know, religious Jewish Catholic schools um you know the school my mother teaches in uh in a Jewish school where I am, where I live and you know obviously it's part of the dress code they only wear skirts. In a charter school I, I It's a little bit more, obviously, it's quasi-government, but still, a court can't decide that. That's just not a justiciable case. Unequal treatment. We get to be colder than, we're colder than boys. Well, what if I say, when you have your period, that time of month, you get colder than boys do. I, I, I mean, like it, it just. This is getting out of hand. We can't debate all social policy in a freaking court. We need to understand that. And again, the foundation for understanding that is recognizing that courts do not legislate, nor do they veto or strike down. Someone who has a justiciable claim that is tangible real injury, not BS glancing injury, and it is currently happening, you could tell them, I grant you relief. That is the only constitutional authority a court has for even for their purposes to set aside a law or do constitutional interpretation. Again, unless Congress explicitly gives to them, but often, in my view, if they're going to do that, that's going to be a violation of separation of powers, and I believe they can't give that away. I know this is a little little naughty, but I wanted to give that over to you because we're seeing a lot of these cases every day. But I think more fundamentally, not the skirt case, but these other cases, notice how every last thing the president's doing, his presidency is worthless if we don't stop this universal injunction business. It's got to stop. Oh, well, maybe the Supreme Court is going to help us. Well that gets us to Mr. Kavanaugh. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the golden calf of Justice Kavanaugh. So I think those of you who follow things closely realize by now that Kavanaugh is is problematic. He is Clearly a lot worse than Gorsuch if you had to compare the two. Gorsuch, there are specific libertarian issues I have with him on criminal law, and it came into play with one immigration case, which was very consequential. But aside from that, it's still the jury's out, but in general, he has actually been with Clarence Thomas a lot more than even Alito, and and Alito has been somewhat disappointing in in several ways recently, so – That that's the deal. I mean, they all drift. So if they're bad from day one, that's really bad. And if you noticed if you noticed what's going on here, he's very reluctant to slap down the lower courts. He is very obsessed with guarding Supreme Court precedent, including recent bad precedent not just like back from row, but recent like like Hellerstat, he a couple of times just had these bizarre concurrences where he didn't add anything to the debate and just had a like a two-page concurrence. It was twice I've seen this already where there's no other reason other than to defend himself to the legal crowd that, hey, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. Like, no, you know, if you read between the lines, there's something very funny going on there. Last night, when he joined with the bad guys to block the execution, you know there was the majority that decided to stay it. They didn't write anything; they just stayed it. You had Thomas and Gorsuch dissented, but they didn't write anything, and he wrote a concurrence. And it was just weird. But again, it's like he has to defend like oh, a Supreme Court precedent. So that's what's been going on. I, I want to point two things, two additional things out to you um, in addition to all the stuff we we're, we're seeing, you know in the global warming case and the abortion case, the cases where he defied us straight up. On Tuesday, we had oral arguments in a redistricting case. and I don't want to revisit the show from Monday or Tuesday. Real briefly, you understand that while there are times where Democrat gerrymanders are 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 terrible and it would be great to strike them down if, if that power would exist of a court, but the reality is if you empower the courts, which they've already done at the lower court level, but we want to stop it at the Supreme Court and get the courts out of redistricting, nine out of ten times is going to hurt conservatives. I have an article out explaining politically why that's true. Um, basically conservative coalitions are scattered liberal ones are concentrated in urban areas so naturally um you know we benefit from natural boundaries so we don't even need to gerrymander but what the what the left is doing is they're saying they're they're not just saying, and this is what's very dangerous about the case. They're not just saying squiggly lines are unconstitutional, which is not true. It's an odious practice that is as old as Eldridge Gary, who was the fifth vice president of the United States, original congressman from Massachusetts. He's one of the founders. It's named after him. You know, They all did it. Um, they all engaged in it. It was the spoils of war. You could politically talk about how to police it. But it's not. To, it's like a. It, it, it's a. They talked about it being a threat to our democracy, and 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 Kavanaugh the whole time was agreeing with that premise. It's a threat to. our – It's just not true. The judicial supremacism is a threat to our democracy. It, it's an odious practice, but it's 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 nothing new. Um, James Madison was gerrymandered. His district was gerrymandered by Patrick Henry. When Patrick Henry was governor, he was pissed at Madison. He he did that. Madison was upset with it. Um, George Washington hated it. Hamilton hated it. They talked about it. Um, as Paul Clement, the, the lawyer representing North Carolina, said during oral arguments that Hamilton actually suggested to John Jay who, by the way, is the other author of the Federalist Papers, um, that the Federalists ought to partisanly gerrymander the Electoral College for the 1800 presidential election. You know, the notion that states couldn't draw the boundaries the way they saw fit, it is is just not true, is 100%. No one ever thought to bring a lawsuit against the districts in the early era. It's a new thing. It was, if there's anything more political, I I sue your drawing of the district. That's not what a court does. It's unconstitutional for them to get involved. And B, just politically, it's worse. It's more arbitrary. There's no standard. And look, Kavanaugh seemed to agree that there's no good standard, but he was... If you read the oral arguments, which I read, and I promise you, I was disturbed by things I saw him say on my own. But then I saw one conservative at National Review um, wrote that he was concerned. Uh, I'm trying to think. His name was Lucas, James Lucas. And a number of liberal outlets, Center for American Progress, uh, Slate. LA Times noted that, hey, he was very open to the liberal four justices on getting involved. And he was, you know, so he asked Clement during the oral arguments, what about the idea that, do you think maybe the 14th Amendment equal protection clause might mandate proportional allocation? So, as I noted, what the left is trying to do is not just say you can't have squiggly lines, but say, you have to have proportionate allocation. Can you imagine that a court could say, just arbitrarily get involved in politics and, and political science? All right. So in your state, the presidential vote in the last election was more or less 50-50. So if there's 10 districts, five have to go Republican, five have to go Democrat. Now, you would think facially this would be neutral. It would affect both sides. But really, this is an attack on the conservative voters, not the liberal ones, because – Almost always, Republicans do better in districts than they do statewide, and the reason is very simple. If you take Florida, North Carolina, um, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, the swing 50-50 type of states, close statewide elections, Republicans have a clear majority even without egregious gerrymandering. In the districts for a very simple reason, because the Democrat votes are clustered in urban areas. And if Republicans merely just kept the natural boundaries, no malice, no attempt to get more political power, just keep the natural boundaries, Democrats are confined to areas that are homogenous, ethnic groups, maybe single women living in urban areas, and then certainly black voters so they'll win these areas 80-20, 90-10 in some places. Republicans will win a bunch of 57-43 areas. But they'll win more of those districts. They'll win them by by smaller margins. That's the Democrats' fault. You can't create a legal mandate out of the Democrats' electoral weakness, which is a strength too. It's a double-edged sword. They have you know block voters, which benefit them in, in winner-take-all. They get a lot of votes out of it. But if it's confined to certain districts, that's their fault. Now, look, in some places, Republicans aggressively gerrymandered more. But generally speaking, it's Democrats who have done it more and have to do it more in order to expand their um, advantage because they're, they are naturally geographically, racially, ideologically, um, demographically I, uh, gerrymandered into oblivion. That's their fault. That is their fault. Not our fault. I I pointed out some interesting statistics in my article. Where is this? If you look at the Romney election, right? The reason why I picked 2012 is because Republicans lost. Even in a losing year. Even in a losing year, Romney still won 226 congressional districts to Obama's 209. And that's because Obama won just 690 of 3141 counties. Hillary Clinton carried just 487. Just 15% of the nation's counties. So the problem is they're 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 clustered. So here's a fascinating statistic state legislative maps which by the way the lower courts are screwing with they they did that with North Carolina not just the congressional maps they're even smaller right state legislative districts are small smaller than congressional districts they're even more localized and confined so republicans advantage is even more think about it obama narrowly carry, carried florida romney still won 65 won the state house district 65 to 55 In Ohio, Obama carried the state by three points. Romney carried the statehouse districts 60 to 39. Even in Michigan, where Obama blew out Romney by 10 points, Romney still won a slight majority of statehouse districts. That's just the way it is. It's not because of gerrymandering. Democrats want to come in and say, we have to have proportional allocation. It's literally a micro – on a state level, it's like abolishing electoral college on a federal level. It's the same principle behind it. On a national scale, this is just within districts on a state level. They want to scatter their clustered large number of voters to influence the entire country. In this case, to influence the entire state. Kavanaugh was saying – that the fourteenth he was asking, does the 14th Amendment include that? I understand the caveats, oral arguments, they play devil's advocate, they try to ask both sides, but he took it very seriously. And any person who believes in the real 14th Amendment would never express it the way he did in the tone of voice he did. And if you if you couple it with other things he said blatantly, for example, he said that proportional representation would be a judicially manageable, quote, judicially manageable unquote solution. He told the lawyers arguing for the judicial standards, he said, quote, I took some of your argument in the briefs and the meekest brief to be that extreme partisan gerrymandering is a real problem for our democracy, and I'm not going to dispute that. And then he seemed to indicate that even though there's no clear remedy on the table, the court should at least, quote, in essence, recognize the emergency, emergency situation for your perspective. He thinks it's an emergency situation. Something that's been a part of our system forever, and a particular part of it that actually is a feature and a positive feature, not a bug at all. He thinks this is a problem that Republicans have too many districts. Now, look in the case of North Carolina, you could say Republicans did gerrymander to squeeze that a little bit more. But like I told you, a lot of that was actually built on the foundation of what Democrats did in the past. But I mean, this guy is really problematic. Let me give you a second case, moving away from. The gerrymandering. Art Arthur, former he's a former immigration judge who is now a fellow at Center for Immigration Studies. He observed in that case, that pre-app case that we talked about, if you remember, where they threw out the Ninth Circuit opinion saying that we can't detain people without bond hearings at a certain stage of deportation of of detention for criminal aliens, and and Kavanaugh signed you know signed on to the right. The majority opinion, but if you remember, the majority opinion was really bad because it actually said that the courts could hear these cases, even though three sections of Ira Ira prohibit them from hearing the case, and they just ignored it. and, and Kavanaugh was part of that. Gorsuch and Thomas were, you know, did, uh, gave a concurrence in judgment, but disagreed with that point of it. And um, the point is, again, Kavanaugh wrote a bizarre concurrence. And the only way I understand it is that he's saying, look, like this is just a very narrow case. We're not trying to assert the plenary power doctrine. It it sounded really bad to me. But there's something I didn't notice until Arthur pointed out to me. Kavanaugh used the term non-citizen 19 times in a place where he should have used the word illegal alien. And judges are very – Stickler, they have to be sticklers for for language because the, these these have legal meanings. He actually proved that one of the places where Kavanaugh used it, it's actually inaccurate. It's actually not true. Like he was saying, of course, you know, obviously the president has the power to deport um, non citizens. That's not true. It's actually not true. Is the power to deport illegal aliens? Non citizens includes legal immigrants, and that's only pursuant to statute. Committing certain crimes, so it's actually not true. So clearly, he went out of his way to use that language. That is very scary. To me, that if you put everything together, he is doing exactly what I predicted. Where everyone was like, "Oh, he's going to be radical and he's going to screw it to all the people who who uh, trashed him." I was like, "No." All the more so, he's going to want to get back in the good graces of the legal profession. And, he, and he's going to do it by screwing us. Here's a man that had nothing to show other than, hey, I have affirmative action of law clerks. I have more women and minorities than anyone. Well, I guess he now believes we need to have affirmative action mandated by the courts for the Democrat Party because they freaking can't appeal to non-urban voters. How about that? That's our big golden calf, folks. That is our big golden calf. Look, I'm about out of steam here. My head's killing. My throat's killing. I'm tired. Um, but I wanted to leave you off with that. There's a lot going on in immigration. If you notice the president keeps mentioning he's going to shut down the border. It's all a matter of what he does and how he expresses it. And we got to get him to do the right thing. Um, keep you, keep up your calls to the white house to invoke inherent article Two and delegated authority. Um, Asylum is not mandatory on an administration. It is a discretionary form of relief. If you have a mass influx that's prima facie, not asylum, and it's a fraud, you do not have to let them in. We're going to keep making that case over and over, proving it different angles. Looks like it's seeping through, and that is progress. That is something to watch. But, you know, in the meantime, it all gets back to at some point, you got to stand up to, to universal injunctions. You got to invoke the the judiciary branch's own case law. You got to invoke it. You got to invoke it. It's that simple. Um, You know, just to close, there is pretty bad news that DHS has now Expanded worker visas. You know, these H2, H2A H two visas. And it's a problem. This is a very big problem. They've expanded TPS. Amnesty for Liberia. Bad guys in this administration are winning out, frankly, against what I believe the president himself would want to do. So all these people at Fox News and you know who they are that don't want to assert themselves of the president they're actually not helping him. They're they're hurting him. I have it on good word. The president does get the problem. And he does want to solve it. But if you just sit there and just get drunk, you know, the swamp's going to win out and he's going to listen to them. He's going to feel like his hands are tied. You could blame him or defend him for it, but that is what's going to happen. And the objective should be to get him not to cave. So that's kind of where we are now. At some point, someone with a bully pulpit needs to effectively articulate that there are limits to the power of a district judge They are not God. They cannot mandate open borders. There's only one man, I mean, there's only one court that could do something like that. And that is the heavenly court. And you know what's ironic and kind of funny? When God was leading out the Jews from Egypt, the apple of his eye, his chosen nation, the the point in history where he revealed himself in a public supernatural way, something that he did away with over time. So we would be able to obviously live our lives and have faith and not have, you know, anyone who does good, they're rewarded instantly. Anyone who does bad they're struck down, but that's what, you know, you had back then to implant in us that, that faith in him. He led them across the desert and you know what? There were two nations that they knocked on their door and they said, Hey, can you just let us in just to pass, not even to come and, Stay permanently, just just literally, just to pass through so we can get to our place. And they said no. Now you would expect the next verse, and God commanded Moses, lift up your sword and smite them. No. God said, you got to go around. And they had a lot of hardship from it. And it caused the Jews to complain, and they sinned. He lost parts of his own nation because of that. because And they were, they were pretty bad guys. The Edomites, pretty bad dudes. But nonetheless, if it wasn't the seven nations of the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel, that God you know, made a decree and said, you guys, the Canaanites, you can only stay here for a certain period. And when you got involved in the paganism and homosexuality, whatever else they did, kind of like like today, we're kicking you out, and it goes to the Jews. So the, yeah, that that was part of it. But anything that wasn't part of the land that they were promised – They had sovereignty over God himself, leading them by a pillar of cloud and a fire at night with his hand guiding them would not guide them through other countries' territory. That is sovereignty. That is what we need to assert. We're going to continue along these lines next week. Thank you for such a productive week. Thank you for your encouragement, your hope, your comments. Keep them coming. I'll try to respond as much as I can. You guys are awesome. You guys are terrific. You guys give me so much. You reinvigorate me and give me such a sense of purpose, and I really feel a lot better this week from it. You know, kind of go up and down just like you guys do, but I think we're making a little bit of progress on this issue. Bear with me, and we'll see what happens next week. Enjoy your weekend. God bless you all. Spend some time with your family. We'll see you back bright and early on Monday.